This is The Rounds Table. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Rounds Table. My name is Andre Madison. I'm one of your rotating hosts and a fifth-year general internal medicine fellow at Western University. I am joined today by my smart and beautiful wife, Dr. Emily Wilson. Emily is a family physician in London, Ontario and an adjunct professor at Western University. She has a background in clinical epidemiology and an interest in physician utilization in Canada. She was a convenient choice to help me with this week's episode as we are both home and in survival mode with our two-week-old baby daughter. Thank you for doing this, Emily. You're most welcome. All right, let's get into it. Tell us about the article that you chose. So my article is from the New England Journal from August of 2018, and it's called Risk Factors, Mortality, and Cardiovascular Outcomes in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes. It's by Rashani et al. All right, cool. Tell us about the bottom line. So this was a Swedish cohort study looking at the excess risk of death and cardiovascular events among patients with type 2 diabetes. And they found that diabetic patients who had their A1C, blood pressure, and LDL at target were non-smokers and had no albuminuria. They actually had no excess risk of death, myocardial infarction, or stroke when compared to the general population. Very cool and real world data. So tell us why you chose this article. So I thought this was interesting because although we know that type two diabetes patients have an increased risk of heart attack and stroke, we basically use all of our strategies trying to minimize the negative outcomes associated with diabetes. And this is really the focus of all of our aggressive treatments and a really large use of healthcare resources for these patients. And this study demonstrates that theoretically, having all five of those key risk factor variables within the target range could actually reduce the risk of MI and stroke for patients with diabetes to match that of the general population. Interesting. So tell us about the methods. So this was a large prospective cohort study, including Swedish patients who had an entry into the Swedish National Diabetes Registry between January of 1998 and December of 2012. They actually included 270,000 patients with type 2 diabetes and matched them with 1.3 million age match controls. They were followed for an average of six years and case matched based on age, sex, and county in a five to one ratio with patients from just the general Swedish population registry. So it was a really large study. Uh Patients were excluded if they had a previous history of MI, if they've had a stroke or amputation, and if they had known kidney disease, including renal transplants or were on dialysis. And for the analysis in this study, they used separate Cox regression models to run for each age category. So looking at those less than 55 up to a category of greater than 80 years of age. The models were extensively adjusted, not only for comorbidities and socioeconomic factors, but also for the duration of their diabetes diagnosis, which was important. The primary objective of the study was to explore the association of the five risk factor variables with their risk of overall mortality, MI, and stroke. And the primary outcome was death from any cause, known acute MI or known stroke. And these were defined based on the ICD-9 or 10 codes from their hospital discharge records. Sounds quite rigorous. So tell us about the results. Yeah, it was a big study. So when we look at the results, the average age of participants was 60 and the average age at diagnosis of diabetes was about 56 years old. And the key finding was really this. So overall, patients with type 2 diabetes who had all five risk factors in the target range had no higher risk of death than the controls with a hazard ratio of 1.06 and they had no higher risk of stroke with a hazard ratio of 0.95. 
Most interesting though, that these same patients, so the diabetic patients, actually had a lower risk of MI than their age match controls if they had all their target variables within the target range. And this was statistically significant. So you're telling me that type two diabetic patients with all of those five risk mm -hmm. factors. Perfect type two diabetic. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Lower risk of of MI. Of MI compared yep. to controls. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So, and for all outcomes, as we would sort of expect, there was a stepwise progression. So as you added an additional risk factor out of target, it would correspond to a stepwise increase in your risk of MI or stroke. This was most noticeable for those young patients. So if you were less than 55 and had all five risk factors out of target, there was a dramatic increase in your risk of death or MI or stroke with a hazard ratio of 4.99. And on the floor, flip side, if you're older, so if you were greater than 80 and had diabetes, but all your risk factors were perfectly managed, your risk of MI was actually quite a bit lower than your age match control. <laughs> Very cool. So what do you see as far as limitations or strengths of the study? So, I mean, this was a large registry-based or cohort study, and it Although it gives us a great amount of data, it's obviously limited by the accuracy of that data and what's available in the hospital discharge records. So one concern we did notice is that the for the risk factor variables, so blood pressure, A1C, these were actually only measured at one point in time. And obviously we know there's constant fluctuation in these values and this really couldn't be captured in the study to know whether better management of these variables was actually relating to the outcomes. But overall, I think, you know, they did a very rigorous cohort study. They used multi-factorial regression models. They handled the missing data quite well, just to ensure that what we do have is accurate and unbiased. And I think it's, the study proves as a, you know, serves as a great catalyst to spark further investigation. And it gives us as providers kind of a boost to continue motivating our patients to achieve their clinical targets. So take us home. What's, what's the take home message for us? I mean, the take home message, I think, is that type 2 diabetes, you know, a diagnosis doesn't have to feel like a death sentence for patients. I'm a primary care provider and newly diagnosed patients in my practice are typically scared and very pessimistic when they think about what this diagnosis means for their longevity and quality of life. I think they immediately picture premature MIs or an amputation and the fear contributes to their apathy and poor compliance. So, I mean, this study gives me some talking points to kind of motivate them about how good the outcomes can be, not only if we target their A1C, but we really try to manage all of the known cardiovascular risk factors for these patients. Yeah, absolutely. Well, very cool study. All right, let's switch gears to the article that I chose which was titled Early or Delayed Cardioversion in Recent Onset Atrial Fibrillation. This was published in uh, April of 2019 in the New England Journal of Medicine by Plumakers and colleagues. All right, so what's the bottom line? In this multi-centered randomized control trial of patients with stable symptomatic atrial fibrillation presenting to the emergency department, a wait-and-see approach, which included rate control and delayed cardioversion, was non-inferior to early cardioversion. Hmm. So tell us about this study. So to start off, I think that the reasons that it's a study worthwhile discussing is that both at the clinician level in the emergency department as well as at the guideline development level, there remains practice variation and, and varying opinions about how best to manage 
acute symptomatic but stable atrial fibrillation in the emergency department that clearly has been initiated within a certain time frame. So you certainly see variations in practice. I think there's also a sort of a moving target as far as how these patients are managed. Even in the most recent Canadian Cardiovascular Society update on atrial fibrillation in 2018, there was a slightly modified suggestion as far as the patient population that they re recommended early cardioversion. And they narrowed the, their suggestion to only certain patient populations. So I think this is going to add to sort of a, a movement or a change in the overall management. Interesting. So tell us about the design of this study. So this was an unblinded randomized control trial in 15 hospitals in the Netherlands. Patients who were greater than age of 18 were enrolled between 2014 and 2018 if they presented to the emergency department with hemodynamically stable symptomatic atrial fibrillation with an onset of less than 36 hours. Patients could be new atrial fibrillation or recurrent persistent atrial fibrillation. Andre, what did they consider to be hemodynamically stable in this study? So their criteria was a heart rate of less than 170 beats per minute and a systolic blood pressure of greater than 100. Patients also could not have ECG changes suggestive of ischemia, have clinical evidence of acute heart failure, or a history of unexplained syncope. Now, patients were randomized to two different arms. First was a weight and C arm for which patients received rate controlling agents and were discharged when their heart rate was consistently less than 110 beats per minute. In this arm, they then arranged a follow-up for the next day as close to 48 hours after the initiation of symptoms as possible. At that time, if patients were still in atrial fibrillation, they were sent for cardioversion. The other arm was early cardioversion, where patients presented to the emergency department and they underwent cardioversion at that time. They preferred a pharmacologic cardioversion with flecainide. If patients had contraindications or were resistant to flecainide, they proceeded with electrical cardioversion. Anticoagulation was initiated irrespective of group assignment. And as I mentioned above, neither patients nor the attending physicians were blinded. The primary outcome was the presence of sinus rhythm on an ECG recorded at a four-week follow-up visit. There were multiple other secondary outcomes, including the length of stay at their index emergency room visits, so how long they were in the emergency at their index visit, return emergency department visits, cardiovascular complications, quality of life markers, and they also used this fairly fancy high-tech cardiac rhythm stick where patients held onto this stick and it analyzed their heart rate and heart rhythm in a subset of the study. And they did this three times a day during the one-month follow-up. So they were, with that, looking at subclinical recurrence of atrial fibrillation. Now, patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion using a centralized web-based system, and they established a non-inferiority margin of 10% based on multiple different clinical factors. So tell us about the results a little bit. 
So in the end, they randomized 437 patients, which was exactly their goal based on their power calculation. The typical patient was a 65-year-old man with a CHADS VASC score of 2. And it's worth noting that 56% of patients had already known paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and 40% were already taking anticoagulants. With regards to their primary outcome, a wait-and-see approach and delayed cardioversion was non-inferior to early cardioversion at achieving sinus rhythm at their four-week follow-up visit. The between-group difference was minus 2.9% with a p-value of 0.005, so statistically non-inferior. Now, to look at each group a little bit more carefully, in the delayed cardioversion, or the wait-and-see group, 79% of them spontaneously converted within that 48-hour window, and the rest underwent cardioversion. At their four-week follow-up, 91% of patients were in sinus rhythm. Looking at the early cardioversion group, 36 out of 219, so 16%, actually spontaneously converted before they even attempted to cardiovert them. And about half of those were cardioverted pharmacologically, and about half using electrical cardioversion. Looking at their secondary endpoints, there was no difference in return ED visits, quality of life markers, cardiovascular complications, or subclinical recurrence of atrial fibrillation using their fancy stick. And in fact, the wait and see group actually spent 38 fewer minutes in the emergency department than did the early cardioversion group. However, they obviously had to come back for their follow-up the following day. So why don't you walk us through some of the strengths and weaknesses of this study? Sure. So I think overall, it's a reasonably well-done study. It's quite a broad and inclusive study. I like the fact that they include both new and recurrent proxysmal atrial fibrillation, as this is really the patients that are being seen in the emergency department. I have two relatively major issues, however, with the study. The first is that a four-week sort of one-off ECG is likely greatly underestimating the recurrence of atrial fibrillation. We know that patients are often going in and out of atrial fibrillation, whether they know it or not. And even in the study, 7% within each group had a return visit to the emergency department for atrial fibrillation. And when they looked at a subset of patients for subclinical atrial fibrillation recurrence using their heart rate stick, about 30% in each group had subclinical recurrence. So I think using one ECG at a four-week visit to say whether delayed cardioversion is worse or non-inferior, it doesn't tell the whole picture. We need to know what's happening in that four-week period. The second part is that when you're faced with this clinical scenario of patient comes in, has had atrial fibrillation that is symptomatic, but they're stable, that you're trying to figure out whether cardioversion is appropriate because if they've had the symptoms for less than, say, 36 hours, trying to get them back to sinus rhythm is one issue. But the other issue is their risk of stroke and anticoagulation and who needs a TEE 
and what is really the duration of time that we're comfortable cardioverting. That weighs quite significantly into this decision and it's really not emphasized in this study much at all. So I think this study does give us part of the question, but certainly you no, know, doesn't give us the whole story. Mm-hmm. I think those are two great questions of concern. Um, what about the use of flecainide as the chemical cardioverter in this study? Yeah, it's it's sort of interesting. Certainly from my experience locally, Flecainide would not be first choice. It, it here, it, I think, in, in most Ontario centers, would require cardiology expertise and follow up. I think most here would be electrically cardioverted, which obviously has its own nuisances and potential risks. I'm not sure it influences the study much. Uh, it may influence the generalizability, but I don't think it's a major flaw. Sure. So, give us the take-home message from this paper. So as I mentioned above, I think this study is part of a larger movement away from urgently cardioverting stable symptomatic atrial fibrillation in the emergency department. I think there's going to be fewer and fewer scenarios where the first step is to cardiovert this type of patient. And I think this study, although not perfect, does provide more evidence that the wait and see approach is probably quite a reasonable strategy especially since almost 70% of them within 48 hours spontaneously converted on their own. So I think it's an interesting study. It's sort of a fun study. Will it be practice changing? Probably not. But like I said, maybe part of a larger movement. Excellent. All right. Now, as you know, we switch gears to the good stuff segment. So tell us about what you've been reading about. All right. So I don't know if it's a change of seasons or having a new baby, but I've been reading and focusing more on climate change issues. I find it often, though, kind of overwhelming to find ways to start making environmentally conscious choices in my practice and also really unsure how to engage more broadly as a health advocate around these issues. So I thought I'd direct your attention to something that I came across. So published in April of 2019, is something called the Climate Change Toolkit for Health Professionals. And this was put out by the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, which is a great organization. This is a big document, but there's some separate modules focusing both on data around climate change specific to the Canadian context. And module eight is called Engaging in Climate Change Solutions as a Health Professional. I think it's got lots of really practical advice and it gave me lots of things to think about in terms of how I can uh, change my practice to be more environmentally conscious. So a big kudos to the authors for this very timely and I think relevant publication. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. The article that I chose until this morning was going to be the New England Journal of Medicine perspective piece by Brian Bird titled Hypertension Hot Potato Anatomy of the Angiotensin Receptor Blocker Recalls. This is quite a nice summary of the ARB recalls and the implications. However, it was, let's say, trumped by a perspective piece that came out just yesterday, May 9th, by Paul Burgle, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, titled At Baseline. It is a wonderfully written, very thoughtful article about the factors that lead to the inpatient goal of trying to get patient back to baseline. And this goal of getting patients back to baseline stymieing critical thinking and inquisitiveness of medical trainees. 
it is of like I said, very very well written. I think should be mandatory reading for all internal medicine residents. Huge congrats to Dr. Virgil for writing this, and and thank you for putting this together. So that's all for us today. So again, thank you to Emily for taking the time to do this. We will get back to crying babies and changing diapers. <laughs> all right. Thanks for having me, Andre. The Browns Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, Director of Quality and Evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in. <laughs>